0: My name is Cal. I have the privilege of serving on the staff team here, and whether you're here in the building, those I see physically, or whether you're online, I'm looking at the camera now to say greetings to you. Um, Thank you for joining us, and, uh, and I hope that uh, if you are newer here, especially, I hope that you feel not only welcome here, but I hope you feel like you're part of the Ebenezer family, because that's the way we want you to feel, and we hope that we treat you in that way. Uh, just a quick note that if you are watching online, we will be uh, coming together to celebrate the Lord's Supper communion this morning, and so if you haven't had a chance to get a, a you know, cracker, a little bit of bread, and some juice ready, you can go ahead and do that as we go through our message. Now, we're in the second week of our new sermon series from the first letter of Paul to Timothy, which we've titled, How Stuff Works, Life Together in the Family of Faith. Pastor Layton got us rolling last week by sharing some of his own personal story regarding his journey toward becoming a pastor, and he's helped set the context of this letter by telling the backstories of Paul, the author of this letter, and Timothy, the recipient of this letter. It was a great reminder and encouragement about how important each of our own personal stories is, are as God uses the experiences of our life for His glory and His purposes if we are willing to submit ourselves to Him. So I also wanna begin this morning by just sharing a little bit of my own journey. Now, Pastor Layton called himself a reluctant pastor in describing his response to pastoral ministry. And I would say my experience was, and, and even today often is still similar. You see, growing up, I never had dreams or even ideas of being in church ministry. I didn't make the decision to receive Jesus Christ and to follow Him until I was 18, the summer after I graduated high school. Now, for those of you doing the math, I didn't fail a year. We did grade 13 back in Ontario, and so I was already 18 when I graduated. That fall, I started engineering studies at Carleton University in Ottawa. And like all good Asian kids, I knew I had to become either a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. And I think accountant is kind of on the acceptable list. Well, after two very unsuccessful years at university, unsuccessful academically anyway, I ended up actually becoming a pretty good snooker player and euchre player. Um, Not not terribly good in school, though. Um, I I just needed a change. And by change, I mean like a change in, in every way. I had no direction for my life. I had no career ambitions. I didn't want to work in a cubicle for the rest of my life. And my parents, my dad in particular, were were very concerned, just to say the least. During the summer of 1988, a group of my friends from my youth group back in Ottawa told me that in the fall they were going to attend a school called Briarcrest, a Bible college located in pretty much middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan. Now, up until then, I had never heard of a Briarcrest, nor had I even heard of Bible college. So they gave me a catalog. There was no online thing to browse at that time, but they gave me a physical catalog to look at. And perhaps because I was still relatively new in my faith, I found myself very intrigued by the possibility of studying Scripture full-time. I was also drawn to the opportunity to get away from home for a year and to spend some time with my friends. And Briarcrest had a volleyball team, and I had just started playing volleyball a few years earlier than that, and I thought I was pretty good, and I wondered if, well, maybe I'd make the team. So that fall, I set off for my adventures in Saskatchewan, planning at the time just to spend one year at Briarcrest. Well, during that first year, I thoroughly enjoyed my studies. I made significant new friendships, and I did make the volleyball team. There's a couple pictures here of my Briarcrest days, and I'm I'm the Asian guy, if that has, okay? <laughs> that, that's easier to, to point out there. I was even asked if I would come back and be an RA for my dorm floor, which I agreed to do. So one year became two, and two became three, and I ended up finishing my undergraduate degree there. Oh, side note, in my third year, I met a young lady by the name of Michelle Sawatsky, but that didn't really affect my decision to go back for another year. It was in my third year that I began to sense that maybe God was calling me to this thing we call full-time ministry. I, I wasn't sure. I mean, very, I wasn't sure, but there was just something about ministry that became kind of this little, you know, kind of poking and prodding in my heart and in my mind. We'll skip ahead a couple of years. Michelle Sawatsky and I are married and living in Saskatoon. We began attending Ebenezer Baptist Church, where a young and dark-haired and mustached Leighton Erickson is the youth pastor— I strike up a conversation with Layton, and I ask if Michelle and I might serve as youth sponsors. And so we did. We joined the youth team with Layton at that time. Michelle was actually the first female sponsor to go on this summer youth canoe trip up to Namibian Lake. Now, if you need to know some faces here, this guy you may recognize. Well, I'm the Asian guy. Yeah, that's me. And this is a very young Michelle, formerly Sawatsky. Uh. Okay, sorry. <laughs> a little distracted there. Sorry about that. Uh, during our time at Ebenezer, God continued to put pieces in place about this possibility that maybe I would be called into ministry. I was always hesitant, though, to jump in, other than volunteering and serving here at the, at the church here and the programs here. After Michelle graduated from the University of Saskatchewan, we took a leap of faith and began to search for our own ministry opportunity. And God led us to a Chinese church in Ottawa where we had the privilege of serving for just over 19 years. Now, before we left, it was Ebenezer here in the gym, which used to be where we would worship because this building wasn't completed yet. It was in the gym over there that Ebenezer commissioned us. And it was a word from Pastor Layton, not necessarily at the commissioning time, but just before that, that I don't even know if you know what you said to me, and we should touch base on that later, but a word that Pastor Layton said to me, we might call it a prophetic word, we're going to talk about that as it relates to Paul and Timothy later on in this series, maybe a prophetic word, he might not say it was, or at least, and I don't know if I received it as one, but it might have been, that helped me take that huge step of faith to enter into full-time ministry. Now, even though I say I'm a reluctant pastor at best, I want to emphasize how much I appreciate and I love that God has given me the opportunity to do what I do, um, and also how much I love serving this church family um, in the time that we've been here and look forward to continue to serve you well into the future. Now, those of you who know me, and I think many of you do, will know that one of my passions for ministry is in the area of God's Word and truth. That's one of the key reasons I went to Bible college in the first place and why I stayed there to finish my undergraduate degree. See, for me, there's always been something about digging into and discovering truth. And and what I mean by that is real, significant, life-transforming and life-impacting truth that I would suggest literally gets me up in the morning, brings me to the office here or whatever my day holds, and and just gets gets my engine fired up. Now, confession— I, and I think like Leighton, don't actually love coming up here on Sunday mornings to preach. However, I do enjoy the journey toward truth, and I count it a privilege to be able to be up here uh, at the times that I'm scheduled, walking with you together as we discover and understand and apply truth, because I believe that truth and sound doctrine matter. Now, our passage this morning is from 1 Timothy 1, verses 3 to 7. If you have your Bibles, turn there and follow along as I read the verses for us. I know we all rely on the stream behind me, but if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to either bring it or, or open it up. I think there's something about having Scripture in your hands that makes a difference. So, uh, Or even open your devices and, and have the words in front of you. But here, Paul, in kind of still the opening section of his uh, words to Timothy, writes this. He says... As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk, They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Now, it's interesting that Paul pretty much opens his letter with this urgency and with this command to confront false teachers. With all the ways that Paul could have began a letter to a dear friend and a a, a young mentor or young pastor in Timothy, you would have thought maybe he would have began with a little more, uh, you know, kind of niceties and, and platitudes. Or saying, what a great job you're doing. We really appreciate you staying there and committing to this. He he begins almost right away by jumping into this. Now, when I'm telling you, you've got to confront certain people not to teach false doctrine. So why is that? Why is Paul making this kind of the priority and using this to set the tone for the rest of the letter? Well, Pastor Layton helped us set the context of this letter as it relates to Paul, the author, and Timothy, the recipient. But there's another context piece that I think we need to explore, and that's the context of the city of Ephesus and the church at Ephesus where Timothy is pastoring. Ephesus is a significant port city on the west coast of modern-day Turkey, and because of its location, Ephesus was considered kind of almost the gateway to Asia. Anywhere you wanted to go in Asia, if you were from somewhere else, you would probably go to Ephesus in order to, to begin your journey through. And because of that, then Ephesus was a busy city. It was well populated. It had lots of visitors. Some would stay for longer periods of time. Others would be just passing through as they, as they either journeyed or traded goods and so on and so forth. And because of all of this activity in the city of Ephesus, this Ephesus was filled with people from all different cultures and backgrounds and worldviews and races and so on and so forth. And this included uh, cultural practices and norms, um, religious beliefs and religious practices and rituals. Now, we read in Acts chapter 18 that the gospel had come to Ephesus through Apollos. Apollos was was an excellent speaker and someone knowledgeable in Scripture, but a relatively young and new believer. So you have this new, young, and fledgling church, perhaps even a few faith communities in and around Ephesus, started by Apollos' ministry as he preached the, the, the gospel there. Acts 18 describes it this way. It says, meanwhile a Jew named Apollos a native, a native excuse me of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Well Paul on his missionary journeys comes to Ephesus during his third missionary journey. And when he arrives, he discovers that this new young church really had only a partial understanding of faith and what it meant to be a Christ follower. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, says this. While Paulus was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No. We haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? Well, John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. You see, Paul realized that 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 church at Ephesus, through the teachings of Apollos, had only kind of received half of what it meant to follow Christ. They understood that they needed to repent from their sins, but they had not yet understood what it meant to receive the Holy Spirit and then begin walking in, in the ways of Jesus. So Paul, on his arrival, recognizes this, and he kind of completes their faith, so to speak. And their faith and their trust in Jesus, so not only have they turned from sin, now that they've trusted in Jesus... That that decision is evidenced by the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They begin to to speak in tongues and to prophesy, similar to the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So Paul stays, and he ministers in Ephesus for another two years. And this is the longest, I think by far, Paul stayed in any one place, teaching the Ephesian church sound doctrine and helping them to grow in what would still be a kind of a newfound faith. Now, if we continue reading in Acts chapter 19, we see that Paul's ministry and teaching were so powerful that many who were caught up in evil practices, such as witchcraft and sorcery, actually brought their scrolls to a public square and had them burned as they confessed their sin. But not all of Paul's ministry in Ephesus would have been characterized by, you know, kind of puppies and ponies and unicorns. There were significant challenges against him and what he was teaching, In Acts chapter 19, if we continue on, we read read about a riot against Paul initiated by Demetrius. Demetrius, who was a silversmith. See, what Demetrius did in the city was he created and he sold silver shrines to the goddess Artemis. And it also appears that Demetrius represented a group of craftsmen who made a living doing similar things. Artemis is a goddess of the hunt, the goddess of wild animals uh, and, and the goddess of fertility. Now, while she was worshipped as a secondary goddess in other parts of Asia, in Ephesus, she was actually considered the main goddess and worshipped primarily as the goddess of fertility. In Ephesus, a great temple was built in her honor. And today, this temple is considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A couple of pictures up here. Obviously, one is an artist's rendition of what the temple might have looked like. And then the second picture is of what is still standing today. And it's still considered one of the the greatest ancient structures of all time as it's on the seven wonders of the ancient world list. So with that information, you can can kind of begin to see a problem here. You have a bustling, busy city like Ephesus where Artemis is worshipped. Visitors and residents alike would come to the temple to pay honor to Artemis and would purchase shrines and models of the temple or, or uh, likenesses, images of Artemis from Demetrius and some of the other craftsmen. And these men would make great profits from their sales. Well, Paul, or Apollos first, and then Paul arrives and begins preaching this gospel that talks about committing one's life to Jesus Christ, who is the one true God, uh, the son of the one true God, or the representation of God in human form, and to stop following these false gods. And as the number of Christ followers grew, the number of Artemis worshippers would drop. And so did the business of Demetrius and other craftsmen. This is what Demetrius says to this group in Acts chapter 19, 25 to 29. He, Demetrius, called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and he said, "'You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business.'" And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. I like the way he saw it, right? Led astray? We'll get to that in a second. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Now, there's a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of, uh, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so the whole city was in an uproar. So Paul enters Ephesus after the ministry of Apollos. And he's confronted with a church that is an incomplete faith and needs right teaching in truth and, and sound doctrine. And then he's being confronted primarily by Artemis worshipers who are against him, but also even within the church, there were those who really didn't understand the doctrine of, of faith and were teaching false things. In a return trip to Ephesus, Paul warns the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church, to be wary of false teachers, both within and from without, that would attempt to draw Christ followers away from the truth. And Paul says in Acts chapter 20... Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. So this is a situation in which Paul writes to a young, a shy, a quiet, reserved, maybe even a reluctant Timothy, pastor and leader in Ephesus. I know. Like, who wouldn't want a pastor there, right? Now, with that background, I think we can understand why, after just a few words of greeting and salutation, Paul begins his letter, sets the foundation for this letter— with a call to confront the problem of false teachers and false doctrine. Paul emphasizes the need for truth and sound doctrine. Let me just make a little bit of a differentiation between truth and doctrine before we move on. Truth is one of those words that if you look it up in the dictionary, it uses the word true in the definition. And I think a basic understanding, when you define a word, don't use the word in the definition. But it's hard to find a definition uh, for truth without the word truth but it's really what is revealed to be true or in accordance with, with facts and reality. That's what truth is. God has revealed truth, general truth, in creation, but he's also revealed specific truth in his word and he's revealed personal truth in his son Jesus Christ. A doctrine is a little bit different, but it needs to be based on truth, but doctrine are the set of principles and beliefs that are derived and interpreted from truth. So these are the the concepts that we draw once we understand something to be true. We develop a belief about that, and that we call a doctrine. See, without truth, you can't have sound doctrine. But you can have truth and still develop unsound doctrine if you don't interpret and understand that truth correctly. And the issue of truth and doctrine were present uh, in Ephesus. Now, as we move through this letter in the coming weeks... As we see how stuff works, we need to ensure that what we believe, what we understand, and ultimately what we practice is based on both truth and sound doctrine. As Paul kicks off his letter to Timothy, he shares with us why false doctrine is so dangerous and has no part uh, in the family of faith. And he gives us two reasons why truth and sound doctrine are essential to life together in the family of faith. So first, Paul talks about three major dangers being perpetuated by false teachers, which he breaks them down as false, te- uh, false doctrine, excuse me, myths, and endless genealogies. This is a high priority to Paul. As he uses the word, I urge you to stay in Macedonia. I command you to confront these false teachers, these, those who are giving false doctrine these myths and these endless genealogies. Now, false doctrine comes from either lies or falsehoods, or they come from a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of truth. And both, again, were present in Ephesus. Most likely here, Paul is primarily addressing the misinterpretation and misunderstanding of the truth of the Old Testament Scriptures, specifically the Torah. These OT teachers were apparently introducing ideas that were derived from uh, human thoughts or human philosophies and developing teachings that weren't true to a proper interpretation of Scripture, and were becoming inconsistent with the teachings of Jesus. Myths or fables, a little bit different, were stories that came from uh, fanciful but inaccurate accounts of history. And endless genealogies focused on the Jewish lineage and overemphasizing and overprioritizing the people's ancestry, heritage, and family ties. Uh, Emphasis was a mixed group, to be sure, but the church would have began primarily with Jewish believers. Now, when I think of false doctrine and myths and endless genealogies, the times that we live in today aren't really that different from the time of Paul and Timothy and Ephesus, are they? I see, we live in a time characterized by what many have called a crisis of truth. There was a time, and not that long ago, where there was a standard of universal truth, and it was accepted. Uh, you either believed it or you didn't. Then slowly but surely, truth has begun to erode, first becoming relative to an individual or even to a society or a culture. And now truth is based not on facts, but on feelings and experiences. And add to that this movement within the Christian church that we've called progressive Christianity, or faith deconstruction. And even what Christ followers once considered truth and sound doctrine is completely being questioned and undermined. The Life Application Commentary puts it this way. Unfortunately, there seems to be a tragic absence of theological awareness among Christians today. With little understanding of sound biblical doctrine, Many are, and quoting Ephesians 4, verse 14, many are blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. You know, blown here and there. That means they're not grounded. They have no root. They have no, no compass point to direct them. Everything is just uh, uh, moving. Like the, like, imagine if you were in the storm yesterday and you weren't secure in in a location, or you didn't have a bearing for your vehicle to drive, imagine how tossed back and forth you would have been. Blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. The the commentary goes on to say, this can happen when individuals read passages out of context, read into Scripture their own interpretation, or listen to false teachers. You know, one of the, the terms that drives me absolutely nuts these days, and you hear it over and over again, especially in, well, I won't say especially where, but all over the place, it's your truth and my truth. There, there's no your truth or my truth. There's truth or not truth or untruth. And the results of these falsehoods, where are these, uh, uh, where are these uh, false doctrines and myths and, and endless genealogy, where do they lead? Verses 4 and 6 tell us that they only lead to controversial speculation and meaningless talk. The controversial speculation is really just guessing regarding truth. Right? It's just like, well, you have your opinion of it, I have my own opinion of it, and maybe we don't agree. And, and, and often these discussions lead to arguments and division and dissension. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with someone when the facts of whatever it is you're trying to discuss are, can't be agreed upon? Like, are the Oilers a good hockey team or not? We can't agree on the facts of whether Connor McDavid is the best hockey player on the planet or Jack Campbell was the right signing to make. Frustrating, eh? Now you know what I live with in the office. <laughs> with the Oiler fans. I'm not pointing anyone out. No, no, I, but, but you understand. I mean, that, that's a trivial a matter. But, but you understand what I mean, right? You ever get into a discussion with someone and, and, and they don't have their facts right? And you're trying to discuss with them, but that discussion certainly becomes a disagreement, and that disagreement actually ends up becoming a conflict. And and in more serious issues, it can be divisive. I mean, obviously the past few years have clearly demonstrated this. Whether it's medical information, or whether it's political positions, or whether it's social issues, there's so many things around us that have divided us simply because we haven't found truth. We can't base our our discussion on on what, what we agree to be true. Pastor Layton, even when he talks about conflict resolution, says the first step in, re- in reconciliation and healing and conflict is you have to discover what's true and not your own interpretation of things. Meaningless talk is, um, I would consider, making... Sorry, myths. Myths is the second part. Myths are just... Uh, oh, yeah, the story, sorry, the outcomes, the, the controversial speculation leads to division... And meaningless talk is really making primary things that are at best secondary or tertiary or or lower on the scale. It it, it takes things that aren't a priority and makes them priority, and it takes our attention and our, our energies and our time away from the things that need to be a priority. You don't have to go very far, even within the Christian circles or within the church, to realize that we make a big deal out of things that aren't supposed to be a big deal. We're not focused on the things that should be a big deal. It's that whole phrase, make the main things the main things. And meaningless talk, which all of these lead toward, uh, distract us from what is actually essential. And neither of these have any place in the family of faith. And so we are we called clearly we need to avoid and confront false doctrine, myths, and endless genealogy. So... Paul exhorts Timothy to confront these things and instead focus on truth and sound doctrine. Well, why? Well, verse 4 gives us the first reason as an antithesis to the controversial speculation. And it is the advancement of God's work, which is by faith. Truth and sound doctrine advance by faith God's kingdom. If you remember Paul's story... His conversion on the Damascus Road came about as the truth of Scripture. The Old Testament Scriptures were revealed to him. Remember that prior to the Damascus Road, Paul already was an expert in the Old Testament law. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Scriptures inside and out. He would have been considered an expert. But he misinterpreted them and misunderstood them, and he thought they meant this, which led him to persecute the church. And on the Damascus Road, all of a sudden God opened his eyes, both figuratively and literally, well, closed his eyes literally, open them up again uh, later on, but revealed to him the truth of the Scriptures, which then turned him from persecuting the church to becoming a, a powerful ally for the church. Paul began to understand the truth of Scripture. Scripture is in the Old Testament that revealed the human sinful condition Paul began to realize that he himself was indeed a sinful, broken person who needed the grace of God revealed in Jesus Christ, who came to save people just like him, came to save people just like us. And Paul says that the God's kingdom is advanced by faith. It's this idea that the life of the Christ follower needs to be characterized and lived by faith. Because we can never fully comprehend or, or draw on a chart or some type of illustration the, the, the complexities of salvation, of God's grace, of God's mercy. Same thing with God's holiness and righteousness, which demands penalty for sin. You see, there comes a point in every Christ follower's life, we heard even in the testimony, and you hear it over and over again, and perhaps this is your story as well, where we, you have to take that step of faith in order to believe. And then you need to take a step of faith each and every day to grow and to mature. Hebrews 11 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Our human minds can't comprehend everything. Our human minds can't figure everything out in a logical, uh, uh, easy-to-accept way. This is why faith is required. This is this is the, the whole meaning or controversial speculation that we can get into if we don't take a step of faith. And faith is central to the advancement of God's kingdom and our growing relationship with Him as we mature in our faith. That's why it's called faith. Truth and sound doctrine advance God's kingdom. And second, truth and sound doctrine cultivate love. True love. You guys, no princess bride here, better than the first service. (laughs) To blame, to blame, or love, to love. (laughs) Okay, you guys laughed a little bit more, but not a whole lot more than the first service. (laughs) True love is cultivated through truth and sound doctrine. Verse 5 said that the goal of this command that uh, Paul is giving to Timothy to confront lies and to confront false doctrine is love. Love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. See, Even when we confront false doctrine, it has to be done so out of position of love. Genuine love is the key characteristic of God's people. Love needs to permeate who we are and everything we do and how we interact with each other, how we interact and relate with those who are around us. Jesus said that the world will know that we, the church, his followers, are his disciples by the love we have for one another. And he also said that the two greatest commandments, the two greatest commandments would sum up all of this Old Testament law and prophets is, if you, wanna, if you don't want to misunderstand what the law and prophets are all about, look at two commandments. One, love God with everything that you are. Love others as you would love yourself. Love is the outcome, the, the, the goal of this command. And you know, over this last few years, again, I, 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 wanna, I don't want to be apologetic, but I want to be careful, but, all, with all of these controversies, all the, these divisions, even within the Christian church, there have been many who have approached them without a, a, a spirit of love. It's been confrontational. It's been self-righteous. It's been, you, you've done wrong, and you you doing this, and so on and so forth. We read stories in the States and in Canada about churches and church families and church congregations that are, are not demonstrating love, even when they confront things that we know are not true. That's not how God calls us to do it calls us to love. You see, the purpose of the law has always been to not only point us toward a Savior, but it's also been to to work in us this inward transformational work of the heart, not an outward confirmation to accepted observances and practice. Who did Jesus come down the hardest on? It wasn't sinners. It's Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees were demanding outward obedience, legalism, and their obedience to the law without recognizing that the purpose of the law was actually to transform our hearts so that our behaviors and our actions would flow from a, a transformed heart characterized by love. We can ask you to do the right things out of legalism, out of guilt, or we can allow truth and the Holy Spirit and sound doctrine to transform us to work in us this this pure heart, these good consciences and these sincere faith and allow our actions and obedience to flow from our character. R.C. Sproul said, without right doctrine, right living is impossible. We have not really understood Scripture if we are not changed as a result of our study. Does truth and sound doctrine cultivate true love. So the dangers of untruth or falsehoods and false doctrine are controversial, divisive speculation, as well as meaningless, time-wasting and time-consuming and priority-killing talk. Truth and sound doctrine leads us towards the advancement of God's work and his kingdom, as well as the cultivation of true love. Paul finishes this section by saying that these false teachers are really doing this for their own ego. They're trying to make themselves appear um, better than they are, more important than they were, or that they know more than they do. These false teachers were teaching with boldness things that they they just simply didn't understand. And they needed to be stopped because their false doctrines were dividing the church and, and hindering God's work. In closing, let me just give you three quick applications for our passage today. Uh, Actually, if you want in the worship, you want to start making your way back up. Let me just give you three quick applications for our passage today. First, we need to know truth if we're going to identify lies. I go back to this issue of the rise of biblical illiteracy. And I first heard of this term maybe over 20 years ago. And I can certainly say, I, I don't know that it's gotten better. Let's put it that way, in general. I mean, not necessarily individually with you here or, or uh, as a family here. But if we simply don't know what the Bible says, we can't identify then what is lie. Right? You can be confronted with an idea, and if it, if it sounds right or it feels good, then maybe you accept it as truth. But we have to hold it up to the light of God's Word and say, is this actually true? So we need to know truth in order to identify lies. Second, we need to properly interpret truth so we can identify false doctrine. It's not just knowing the truth, it's how do we interpret that truth. And there are sound uh, interpretation principles, which we call hermeneutics, that help us then derive our doctrine from truth. And we need to learn how to interpret truth so that we can identify false doctrine. I already talked about progressive Christianity. And one of the dangers is that it might acknowledge truthful principles, but it interprets them in a whole different way. Progressive Christianity, or what we call uh, Christian deconstruction, and their, their emphasis is on our feelings and our experiences. And we've, we've begun to, and I hope we haven't, uh, but we, might, we have to be careful, we have to be mindful, but it lowers and it even undermines the authority of God's Word. We get, instead of putting God's Word at the foundation and how we respond and react and feel on top of that, we put how we feel and what we experience, and then we put God's Word in light of those things. And that's false doctrine. That's a danger. It creates subjectivity. It becomes your truth. Another, again, drives me crazy. Third, not only do we need to know truth and we need to interpret truth, but we need to live truth so that we can advance God's work and we can grow in love. God's kingdom and inner, transformational, and inner transformation are works of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit works in unison with the God's Word to bring about that change. So when you open God's Word, when you read it, when you study, when you meditate it, when you apply it, do so not only from a head level, like a, a head mindset, a, a knowledge mindset, but allow it to penetrate your heart. And I would imagine and I would bet that if you prayed that, you, that God would change you through His Word and through His Spirit, that God will begin that transformation of the heart. Now, slowly but surely, you'll begin to reveal Christ's character in your life, particularly in the area of love, even when we're confronted with difficult things or challenging things. This morning, we have the privilege of joining together for communion, around the communion table, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And as it relates to our message this morning, truth and sound doctrine... always leads us to Jesus Christ. And always leads us to the sacrifice that he made on the cross on our behalf. You see, Jesus did for, what, did for us what we could never do for ourselves. As he took on the punishment for sin in his broken body, and he paid the penalty of sin through his shed blood. If you're here this morning, whether you're in the room or if you're watching online, and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ so as to have a right relationship with God, begin this inner transformation towards Christ's likeness that God longs for us to have, then you can do so right now. This is not a ritualistic thing. God God broke down all those barriers. He said, this is a step you can make in your very own heart. You simply need to acknowledge your sinfulness, confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and trust by faith in His work on the cross, and then make a commitment to following Him. If you haven't done that and that's something you want to do, we would be happy to to talk with you about that. Or if you know somebody uh, who's a Christ follower, talk to them. And make that decision today. Don't delay. If you already consider yourself a Christ follower, then Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians to take a moment to examine our hearts before we take communion and ask God to reveal anything that might be in your life that may be hindering your relationship with God and to confess that before you come to the table. So why don't we just take a minute to do that, and then we will take communion together. So just take a moment uh, of quiet. If anyone didn't get one of the communion elements, if you want to just pop up your hand, I know there are ushers at the back. I should have said that a little bit earlier. If anyone didn't get communion elements. Okay, yeah, there's a few hands there. We'll give a, a second there. I know we also have a gluten-free option uh, for the wafer so if that's something you need we can try to get that to you uh, but that will be available each time we, we do uh, have communion together which usually on the first Sunday of the month the well, scripture tells us that on the night Jesus was betrayed he took the bread and after he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for you do this whenever you eat it in remembrance of me let's take the bread together And scripture continues to say that after supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, This is a cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's receive the cup, the representation of Christ's shed blood together. I'll invite you to stand and let's just pray together. Father, thank you so much for the gift of your son. Thank you for his willingness to sacrifice his glory in heaven, to come to earth, be born as a human being to live a life, a sinless life, so that he could be our perfect sacrifice, and that through his broken body, the punishment of sin was paid, and through his shed blood, the the penalty of sin was paid. Father, thank you for this incredible gift, and thank you for your word, which guides us into your kingdom, Father, and just into your kingdom and into your ways, which grows in us and transforms in us Christ-likeness and love. Father, thank you for this gift. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for being with us. Um, Thank you for those who have joined us online, not risk uh, the the road conditions and that. Just a reminder for second service people too that if you want to come early and join us for our Coffee Connection time, uh, Cinnamon Buns and Coffee in the chapel, we'd love to see you then. And also a reminder that next week will be our deadline for Christmas shoeboxes. So if you haven't yet packed one, you want to grab one, Take one on your way out and bring it back next Sunday. Uh, We look forward to seeing you, whether it's at service next Sunday or throughout the week as we have opportunity. I trust you have a great week.